I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. The act of following and documenting someone else's life is one of the hardest challenges producers face in their work. Relationships intensify, stories change, sometimes drastically, and the line between the personal and professional can begin to blur. In this session called Documenter and Documentee from the 2007 Third Coast Conference, a producer was invited to talk with a person whose story they followed and told. They discussed the struggles they faced together throughout the process and what they've learned from each other through the experience. This first part of Documenter and Documentee is moderated by Joe Richman, the creator of Radio Diaries, and features producer Mary Beth Kirshner and Rebecca Peterson. The subject of Kirshner's story, A Year to Live, A Year to Die, which you can find a link to on thirdcoastfestival.org. Here is Documenter and Documentee, part one. Uh, my name is Joe Richman from Radio Diaries, and I guess I'll start by saying... In every story and in every interview, there is kind of a, a dance that happens. Um, a relationship is formed between reporter and subject, um, and it, it is a relationship. And this is especially true with personal stories and stories told over time. For the subject, the question may be, how and what do I decide to share with this stranger, and then ultimately with a national radio audience? For the producer, it may be, um, how do I balance my responsibilities to the story and to this real-life human being that's on the other side of the microphone? You know, how do I know what I'm doing is right and, and when it's not right? This session is about both sides of that process. The two women you're going to meet soon, Mary Beth Kirshner, producer Mary Beth Kirshner, and documentee uh, Rebecca Peterson, spent about three years not... Uh, being sure that they even wanted to to work together in some sense, and and had having real doubts about the production, and yet the story could not be more intimate. This piece is also an interesting case study in a reluctant participant becoming the kind of the surprise central character in a documentary, and I think it's also a good lesson in the power of simplicity in storytelling. So what we're going to do is we're going to play the entire story, twenty-ish um, minutes. So sit back and relax, and then I'll bring Mary Beth and Rebecca up here to ask for you to ask questions of, for me to ask questions of, and for them to ask questions of each other. And um, so sit back, relax. We, should we turn off the lights, maybe? Yeah. Why don't we do that? Yeah. Uh, 
Anyone know where they are? <laughs> oh, maybe over there. And if you want to, if you want to scoot up, there's a little bit more room. If you want to sit on the floor or anything up here, we can scoot down a little bit. This is called a year to live, a year to die. This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Melissa Block, and I'm Michelle Norris. Almost three years ago, independent producer Mary Beth Kirshner received an extraordinary offer to help a man document the most difficult time of his life. Stuart Selman was 48 years old. He had just been told he had a malignant brain tumor, and he was anxious about how little time he might have to live. Stuart Selman agreed to keep an audio diary, and he did this until his death a year later. He wanted to leave this record mostly for his wife, Rebecca Peterson, and their two children. But he knew the rest of us would be listening, too. To tell the complete story, we've asked Rebecca to listen to Stuart's diary and offer her own memories of his final months. What you're about to hear are some of the most intimate stories about the hard truths of a terminal illness and how it can unceremoniously usher a life to its end. Producer Mary Beth Kirshner brings us this profile. Stuart Selman started recording his audio diary on February 22, 2003. His first entry was made while he was in the hospital awaiting tests, awake and alone in his room at 2 in the morning. It's been two weeks since he first learned about his brain tumor. We only live about five minutes from where the CAT scan was done, and I, you know, I was kind of keeping it together. I, you know, this was a big deal. I drove home, and you know, my kids were downstairs uh, playing a game, and you know, I went upstairs, and uh, you know, I saw my wife, and you know, I just started crying. You know, I, you know, I knew I had this brain tumor, and uh, I knew my wife was going to change forever. Yeah, I remember that. Stewart's wife, Rebecca Peterson, is hearing these tapes for the first time. She says she hasn't felt ready to listen to them until now. It's been almost a year since Stuart died. I remember that him just coming home and, like, the door slamming before the door even, I think, slammed. He was yelling out my name and bounding up the stairs and... You know, he just held me, and I was like, what, what, what can it be? I just felt terrible, and I really, really had these uh, incredible feelings of guilt that I was, I was abandoning my wife, you know, that we had made this, like, lifetime deal. I wasn't going to be there, like, uh, you know, when we were old or whatever, and she was going to be left, you know, with my children, and it would just be much, much harder. Rebecca Peterson and Stuart Selman met 14 years before in the highlands of Guatemala. Rebecca was teaching English. Stuart was there while traveling. At Stuart's memorial service, Rebecca told the story of their very first meeting. Imagine my surprise, 14 years ago in March, when from a darkened doorway at a Spanish language school where I worked in Guatemala, I opened the door to a brilliant blue sky silhouetting a young tanned man with the most luminous green eyes I had ever seen asking for me. Stuart quickly passed Rebecca's ultimate test of a future husband imagining what conversations would be like with him after 10 years of marriage. With Stuart, she says, she knew they would always be easy and interesting. I felt a sense of warmth, of connection, of gentleness that really impressed me. And 11 years later, their life, now with two children, was all she had imagined. But everything changed so quickly that last year. This entry is from the first week of Stuart's diary in February 2003. I don't feel any bitterness about why me getting a tumor? As I've gotten older, you know more and more people that bad things have happened to, and it's sort of, gosh, it can't always be the other guy. 
Rebecca Peterson had been worrying about her husband, Stuart, for months. He'd started getting migraines almost weekly. Stress, they both thought, was the likely cause. But the headaches kept coming, stress or no stress. That's when Stuart's doctor suggested the CAT scan. Their follow-up visit with the neurologist still haunts Rebecca to this day. He wasn't mean about it. He was very compassionate about it. But then he said... You know, I've seen families, a lot of families go through this, and there's a lot of different ways that people handle it. But there's some families who are able to pull together and to achieve this kind of transcendence, and transcendence was the word he used, where they go through their grief and their anger and everything else, but, you know, they really have something precious that they hold on to in the end. And I think one of the things that I feel worst about (laughs) is the fact that I never felt anything like transcendence. I never achieved anything like that with my family. I mean, instead of things sort of coming together and us having this wonderful, glowing, transcendental experience, it was really quite the opposite. Things just kind of dissolved and got down to a very, very basic kind of survival level. At that same visit, Stuart and Rebecca also learned that his tumor was rapidly growing. It was now the size of a golf ball behind his left ear and would have to come out immediately. Stewart's Diary, February 26th. Hi. It's about uh, a quarter to seven. I've been brought down to my room to like a pre-op room. Rebecca's here with me. She's been rubbing my tummy, which makes me feel really, really, really good. You know, it's the best thing I want to see before I go into surgery. The surgeon got most of the tumor, but with the malignancy in the brain, even if the tiniest amount of cancer cells are left behind, there's almost certainty of recurrence. Post-surgery and on steroids, Rebecca remembers she first started noticing changes in Stuart. The day that I drove him home from the hospital, I was driving him home in the van, and, uh, you know, I'd mentioned to him that a friend of ours had recommended a book about a doctor who had, you know, had a brain tumor and had tried some, you know, different things, and would it be interesting to go get it? And he just exploded into a rage at me. He was screaming so loud at me in that van that I had to pull it over and park it because I just couldn't drive it anymore. I was, I was like, trembling. I don't know who brought this up, but I flipped out. Stuart's Diary, March 5th. And we've been married, like, how long? Like, it's 11 years, 11 years last November. In the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes, we probably yelled at each other more intensely and maybe with more passion than we had in the previous 11 years combined. Rebecca says that ride home was the first sign that they were entering new territory. The drugs, the surgery, the radiation, and the ever-growing tumor were taking over. He came home, and we continued to have that argument. He ended up, like, kicking the door in the bathroom and, like, kicking it practically off the hinge. I mean, it was just a level of anger and violence that I had just never seen in him. Stewart was adamant. He had no interest in books about his cancer. Instead, he was reading about stone walls and wrought iron fences, projects he'd always wanted to finish around the house. Stewart was a home indoor air quality consultant and had a background in construction. In his diary on March 24th, Stewart explained that these projects felt more therapeutic. I was talking to Rebecca about it a little bit, especially as as I build these things, I'd really like the home to just be part of uh, my family's home for uh, the foreseeable future. In some ways, uh, I think I'm building a monument to myself. And when friends came to visit, and there were many visitors from near and far, they were often recruited to help with the house. 
on occasion. Stuart would take along his tape recorder. You're one of the best workers I've had so far. We may keep you an extra week. <laughs> one of the things that, that really ticked me off to no end was the amount of time Stuart wanted to spend working on the house. What was good for Stuart, throwing himself into home projects, wasn't necessarily good for the rest of the family. Rebecca hears Stuart's version and remembers things very differently. I had this fight going on inside of me. I wanted to say, you know, why can't you be more helpful around the house? If you've got the energy to work on the house like this, why can't you do the dishes and pick things up and clean? Just do something to help me out, because here I am. I'm struggling. I'm going to work every day. I'm coming home. I'm trying to manage the kids. I was dying under the weight of all that. And then, you know, the worry and the concern about what was going on with him. This has been a little bit of a harder week. Stewart's diary entry, April 1st, 2003. You know, I've had, uh, and even as I speak right now, I sort of have this very, very slight uh, throbbing in in my head, uh, which is, you know, even if it is nothing, if it's just swelling associated with radiation or perhaps even still the surgery, it's a reminder, hey, buddy, you know, it's, uh, it's still there. And on April 5th. You know, I don't know if you could really hear it there as I'm doing this, but I'm just short of breath now, just even talking. So it's really kind of a track. It's just... uh, my body is in the process of falling apart. It's something I'm going to battle, but I just don't know how, how it'll all turn out. And just even putting on, for me, 8 to 10 pounds, man, it's a real big deal with my wife. Uh, I mean, I'm not that big of a person, and you put it all on in your belly, it's, uh, you see, there it is. I'm just shaking my belly right now with one hand. And then there were the kids. Rebecca and Stuart had two young children, Dahlia, age 8, and Noah, 10. Have I woken you up, Noah? Stuart would often wake up in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, and move into a guest bedroom to record his diary. On occasion, Noah or Dahlia would wander in and lie with him on the spare futon. Stuart's diary, April 12th. Did I wake you up? Say good morning. Good morning. How did you sleep tonight? Did you hear the thunder? In the wee hours, Stuart would often tell the kids stories until they fell back to sleep, stories he wanted them to remember about him, like how he became a cowboy for a short while and led a 20-mile cattle drive. But Dahlia was more intrigued with the present from Stuart's diary on May 1st. Dahlia's really, really into my big scars and just really wants everybody to see them. Noah, on the other hand, uh, doesn't want to see them, and uh, you know that's fine because I, I don't particularly like looking at them either. Stuart and the kids had more time together since Stuart quit work. But Rebecca recalls his relationship with their children was slowly changing, too. There were many, many days when you know I'd either get calls on my way home from work or at work, or as soon as I pulled the car up you know, to the house, kids were running out the door and saying, Mom, you know, Daddy's being mean to us, and... One morning, it really came to a head. Rebecca remembers Noah was having a tough morning, arguing with his dad before school. And when Stuart went out to pick up the morning paper, Noah swung open the screen door and almost hit his dad in the face. You know, which, granted, would enrage anybody. But he grabbed Noah by the scruff of the neck and swung him around and, like, laid him down and just, like, sat on top of him and said, you know, like, don't you ever even think of doing that again and just really scared the crap out of him. And at that moment, I was really scared and really angry. And I you know, took the kids. It was time to go to the bus. I took the kids to the bus stop, and I came back home. And I went upstairs, and I just screamed at him. And I said, don't you ever do that again to any of my kids. 
because I will send you out of this house and you will die a lonely man. And, um, of course, I regretted that <laughs> after I said it. But I had to let him know that, you know, his behavior was just getting more and more extreme. The steroids. On them, they made Stuart manic. Rebecca remembers Stuart was able to single-handedly lift up an old washer-dryer and walk it to the curb to be picked up as trash. But off them, he was lethargic and depressed. Stuart's diary, June 3rd, six months after his diagnosis. My, my steroids have been reduced, um, and they, they may be eliminated. That would be good. Oh, gosh, well, I'm, I'm forgetting here. You know, for my uh, seizures, uh, the... Uh, See, I do lose words. Um. Stewart's tumor was slowly growing back and was gradually taking away his speech. The tumor, the steroids, the radiation. Rebecca didn't know what to blame for all the changes in Stewart, including the paranoia. He was convinced that a neighbor of ours who lives down the street had come into our house and had started doing things in our house, like, like changing the wiring or taking his slippers and hidden them or other things. And this person has never been in our house. And he would just say, no, you're wrong. I know she was here. Rebecca occasionally took walks with neighbors, trying to make sense of what was happening. But mostly, she was quietly keeping stories like these to herself. Eventually, she started looking online for support. I would read stories like that all the time of people who were just dealing with these, you know, wild, emotional, behavioral, and all other kinds of problems that they were just struggling to try to, you know, cope with. And some people, you know, I would read, you know, these beautiful stories about people, you know, ending their, you know, 30, 40 year marriages. And it was just so beautiful how they, you know, they just loved each other, you know, right out of existence. And I was just thinking, God, you know, why isn't that happening to me? Why isn't that going on in my life? Instead, Rebecca says Stuart and his illness pushed her further away. I mean, there were a lot of times when he wanted to divorce me. He would just get so angry when I would try to tell him that his perceptions of things were wrong. He would just say, we should just get a divorce, you know, and I will just go away and, you know, you can do whatever, but, you know, I just don't want to be around you anymore. And um, that was really hard. Eventually, Rebecca decided to take a leave from work. It was too much to keep up with the kids and home and alternative treatments for Stuart's tumor. But Rebecca remembers the tension between them only grew. Sometimes we'd be out and he'd get ticked off with me about something and he'd just start dressing me down right in public, you know. And um, I, I didn't know what to do. And at that point we were seeing some therapists, speech therapists and physical therapists because he began to lose sensation in one of his legs, which was causing him a lot of mobility problems. And sometimes he'd go in and he'd start talking to them about our relationship issues and saying, you know, Rebecca's doing this and this and this. And I'd, say, I'd have to say, you know, honey... She's not really here to hear that. You, she's here to help you with your movement. But I knew they had nothing but sympathy for me. <laughs> and they would hand me little notes and say, you know, try calling this number, you know, call this social worker, do this agency. And, you know, it was scary. It was terrifying. One of the most difficult moments came one evening about eight months into Stuart's illness when her father-in-law was visiting. Rebecca says she was trying to stay out of an argument Stuart and his dad were having about politics trying not to incite Stuart to any further anger. And um, he accused me of being, you know, a coward, and he was just getting really worked up about it. And at one point, I just had to take the kids upstairs because they were, you know, wandering around the house. This was in the evening. And we all sat in the bathroom. We closed the door and we were just huddling. And I had to say, you know, 
your dad is not thinking right. And um, I want you to be careful around him. You know, I know that now he can't move around very fast because of his leg. And I know you could get away if he ever tried to hurt you, but you know, I want you to know that this is not him. It's just, you know, it's the brain tumor. And I remember Noah saying, God, how can you let him talk to you like that? How can you let him treat you like that? And I said, it's, it's just not him. Stewart gradually started losing his ability to talk. The doctors said nothing could keep the tumor from growing. So they decided to bring in hospice care. I think one of the difficulties in speaking language now is that I just miss and lose tremendous amounts of water. Not water. <laughs> just words. Not water. Words. And uh, this is not good. This is not good whatsoever. I can't even talk English anymore. This really stinks. Let's see, what is this? Furnace? No, it's not a furnace, obviously. I know what a furnace is. Um, I can't do it anymore. This really may not be time anymore. Really, you're just sucking the life out of my ability to talk. Where do I turn this off? That was Stewart's last diary entry, November 20th. He died two months later, almost exactly a year after his diagnosis, at home with Rebecca and the kids and surrounded by family and friends. Rebecca says it took her almost a full year after his death to get to the point where she could really feel the loss. This grieving about what I've lost that I've just been having the last couple weeks is, is to really get back to that person, that person that I met in Guatemala, that person who I traveled with and, um, you know, just, you know, had wonderful times with. It's taken a long time to, to really put the rest of this nastiness behind me. Rebecca says the turning point for her was a phone call not long after Stuart died from an old boyfriend, her first boyfriend, actually, from high school, who had heard about Stuart's death through mutual friends. He'd lost both of his parents when they were teenagers in Cincinnati, and they'd broken up in the midst of his grief. They hadn't talked in over 10 years. He's been calling me like once a month or maybe six weeks or something just to check in and see how we're doing. And, and then and also, you know, I was looking to build this cabinet in my office, and it turns out that he's a cabinet maker. He asked Rebecca to make a drawing of her cabinet and said he'd build it for her. And I said, yeah, but how do we get it here? It turned out that I flew down there to Cincinnati, and we loaded up a truck and we drove it back, and um, we just fell like head over heels in love with each other once again. Head over heels in love with someone else. And that's what's provoked a flood of grief and love for her late husband. It just, it just boggles the mind. You know, having this emotional thing happened to me has just opened the gate to all kinds of emotional things, other things. And like I said, this grieving that, that I have just been furiously avoiding, that I have put up walls and walls and walls just to not feel, all of a sudden I can't do that anymore because I am just blown wide open and I have to feel it. And it's coming out and it's coming out as grief. It's coming out as all the things that, um, you know, that he and I had that were really, really wonderful and the wonderful parts of our relationship and, and the person that he was. And, and that loss, to me, is just much sharper now. When Stuart was keeping his audio diary, he made only one brief entry where he talked about what his death might bring. 
It was recorded a few weeks after he learned about his brain tumor. You know, I mean, who knows what happens to me like when, uh, you know, when I die. I mean, maybe there's an afterlife, maybe there isn't, maybe you just sort of uh, return to the earth and uh, your spirit just kind of disperses. I'm not sure. I guess I'll find out. But, you know, how Rebecca's future proceeds is going to be different. I mean, she, let's say we say two years. So she'll be uh, 46, young, still really cute. And uh, I don't know what her life will be like, but it'll be different. It's now been another full year since Rebecca first heard these tapes. Her life is different now. Rebecca says she and her old boyfriend are no longer a couple. She's just quit her job and is in search of a new career. A few weeks ago, she celebrated her son Noah's bar mitzvah, an event that was especially painful without Stuart. Stuart was Jewish, not Rebecca. And she says she still finds her thoughts wandering to Stuart daily, in those rare moments where she has some time alone, where she wonders what he would think of her new life. I mean, I still even have certain places in the house that I associate with Stuart. Our third floor, you know, which we were working on finishing as he was dying, you know, I was trying to get that whole space done. And now that it's done, I, you know, I walk to the north window and I always look out that window. And whenever I look out that window, I think of him and I feel like he's right there. Rebecca lost Stuart in so many ways before he died. In her memories, at least, she's now with the husband she knew and is happy to have him back. Mary Beth Kirshner is an independent producer in Los Angeles. Rebecca Peterson told us her greatest hope in sharing these difficult private stories of Stewart's last year is that other spouses or family members might not feel the same isolation that she lived with as she lost her husband to a brain tumor. She asked if we would list resources for families on our website, and we've done that. There's also an essay by Rebecca on making her family's pain public and a form where you can share your own experiences. You can find all that at npr.org. I want to bring up Mary Beth Kirshner and Rebecca Peterson. Rebecca, I, th- I think you missed this, but I mentioned this morning as we were sort of describing what these sessions would be, I said, I said that, um, you know, it's a very brave thing, of course, to share your story for a, a national audience and brave as well to come to a, a group of radio producers and have to do it all over again. So we're happy that you're, that you're here. Um, we're going um, gonna to talk about this, of course, and we're going to save time at the end for questions. If you have a burning question along the way, you know, feel free. But I guess... The first thing I wanted to say is that, I mean, as both as a listener and as a producer, I'm kind of addicted and interested in tape where you feel something happening, where it feels like you're, as a listener, you're experiencing something happening there in the tape. And I thought that maybe in this session we can try to reproduce a little bit of that sensation. So I would ask you, as much as you both feel comfortable, to sort of ask questions of each other and to address each other. Because I know there's a lot of the stuff that you haven't talked about as well. So maybe it's possible that as much as we're discovering it, uh, you are too. So let's, let's start, first of all, by just talking about how this began, how you came upon this story and how you approached Rebecca and what you thought you know, as this was beginning. Um, it's a, kind of a, pr- a private reason why, I guess, um, 
I had a grant. Some of you um, may remember Rick Madden from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Joe's been funded by him a lot. A lot of people in this room have been funded by him. And I had a grant from him several years ago for a series that I just uh, very generically called Lives in Bold, which was meant to be people at heightened moments of life. So that pretty much means anything, right? Any interesting story. And um, Rick, who became a dear friend and patron of a lot of us, um, had a malignant brain tumor and died within a year's time. And um, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe one of the stories that I will do, the last piece I will do with the funds that he had given me was a story about someone who had the same tumor. So I was just out to dinner with a friend in Los Angeles who's a friend of Rebecca's, a good friend of Rebecca's, who said, I have a dear friend in Minnesota who was just diagnosed with this malignant brain tumor. And I thought, oh, God, this is what Rick had. So what does he have? And she told me, and I thought, gee, I wonder if this is the person. Do you know him? What's he like? Do you think he might be open to keeping a diary? I had a young, my son was very little at the time. I couldn't be flying back and forth, and I thought maybe the diary was the way to do it. So, right, that's how it began. I wrote... Stuart had just been diagnosed, yeah. like within days, right? Yeah, I think, um, well, it was through our mutual friend connection that, um, that, I had heard, that he had heard about that. And actually, I wasn't as involved, uh, if at all. I don't know that I was involved in that initial discussion. Uh, yeah, I wrote a letter. Mm-hmm. I just wrote a letter to Stuart mm-hmm. explaining who I was and what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And one thing that... That struck me from the beginning was that people had told me at a distance, oh, Stuart is, he's very funny, he's really chatty, he mm. really loves to talk, he'd be perfect for this. Yeah, right? that's true. He's definitely a talker. That's true. Um, and, um, yeah, in fact, we used to joke about him opening uh, an office someday that said open for conversation, and that would be his line of work. <laughs> so, yeah, in a way, he was the perfect person for that, and, and I am the more reserved person of the couple. I know. So, um, and even though Mary Beth invited me many times to pick up a tape recorder and even sent them out from the public radio station, along with, you know, ones for the kids, it was just not something I could do. It was just, um, I could not sit down with that thing and turn it on. I don't know why exactly, but I couldn't. I mean, there had been other, of course, Joe, the master of the diary. There have been plenty of other diaries we've all seen incredible portraits of people's last year of life or whatever it may have been. And so I knew that had been done. Um, And so I tried to get the rest of the family to keep diaries. I thought, well, what if Rebecca kept a diary? Or what if the children kept diaries? Or what might there, might there be a way to do this in a more interesting fashion? Um, Stuart, I sent an engineer to work with him the first night he was in the hospital, still having tests. You heard some of that tape. And he talked for three hours that night. With this engineer, he was learning the you know the tape recorder and the microphone, and he I have three hours of tape just from that one uh-huh. session. Uh-huh. Um, but Rebecca, um, she had the tape recorder. The kids had the tape recorder, and I understood she just did not, just was not her thing. It was uh-huh. just right, right. That's what I was guessing at a distance. Yeah, well, and I had too much else to think about. At the right. end of the day, uh, I it just didn't seem appealing to sit down with a tape recorder. Uh, I wanted to go to bed, you know, and I just wanted to be away from the whole experience, I think. You know, it's part of that comment about putting up walls and trying to avoid feeling. I just didn't want to examine it that closely, I think, to a certain degree. And, um, yeah. 
And you know that awful feeling. If it were you, it's easy to ask someone, but if it were you and your husband was dying and somebody, you know, some radio producer wanted you to record your thoughts at the end of the day, would you do it? I don't know. I don't think I would do it. I think, you know, of course, the fascinating thing in the backstory of this piece is how it completely changed. And I think, um, I remember this is line that Ira Glass said that I just love about the, the, story, the time, the moment he knows he has a story is when he realizes it's not the story he thought it was. And I wonder if you could talk about this, um, what you were thinking about the original concept, Stuart's Diary, um, as you were getting these tapes back, um, how, how were they and what did you think th- about this story you had planned? Interesting to talk about this in front of in front of Rebecca. Um, what did I think? Well, I thought at the beginning when I first and I met Stuart very briefly. I thought, oh, he's going to be great. He's very funny. He loves to talk. He talks and talks and talks. There, you know, if we have a whole year of, of amazing moments, there's there's probably going to be some really great material. And periodically, I would say, okay, when you have, you know, four or five cassettes full, just send them to me, and I'll start listening, and I'll give you feedback. And and um, I would log for hours and hours and hours, and I would think, wow, this is, um, he's very aware of the process, you know, he's very aware that there, he's, this is not as nearly as intimate as I had thought. You'd think with a diary, you'd get greatly intimate material. And it's more of a chronology of what's happening rather than really kind of living deeply in the moment of what's happening in this last year of his life. And it's almost as though he's not really telling me all that's happening. He's just very aware that there's another audience for this, which is the exact opposite of what you'd expected. So I would call him and say, okay, you know when you were talking about this, that's the perfect moment to just don't be rushed, just tell me more. I mean, Joe and I, we saw each other. I think we saw each other that summer where I was in the middle of logging all this tape thinking, what am I going to do? Because this isn't a story yet. There's nothing about this that sounds very crass, as I say this. It feels like, as a storyteller, that there's nothing here that's um, revelatory in any way. I just feel like I, I know all this. Um, Sadly, you know about the experience, and uh, and I didn't. I was working with Emily Botine, and um, at the next big thing, we had thought we were going to do it for that show. And I remember playing it for Emily and Sean Collins, saying, "Listen to some of these excerpts; these are the best." Am I right? I don't think this is enough. And they were both right. This isn't this isn't a story yet. Do you want to play one of the excerpts? Yeah, I, I think they pulled an good. example of the kind of things Stuart would record about things that he and Rebecca were in the middle of where I thought, hmm, it's number three. Two? On, on disc two. Uh, track two. Track three. Rebecca and I went uh, over to the east side here in St. Paul. There was a, you know, it's, it's a ceremony for uh, sitting Shiva, a member of uh, the Mount Zion Synagogue, not someone I knew very well. She died. She had a long-term illness. And uh, and I think, you know, the biggest uh, thing about that for me is, you know, I, I really didn't know her or her husband very well. Uh, and they have a son who's uh, Noah's age. And I think it was just, uh, uh, you know, thinking more about, well, you know, you know, here's this ten-year-old who uh, who uh, lost his mother, but it it does it does make you uh, think a little bit. So it's like it's just the beginning of what you think someone would really 
um, really have to say about that experience of seeing another child at someone else's memorial service and wondering what the experience would be for your own child. It's like it's just the very beginning of what someone would say. And that's as far as it would go, typically. Rebecca, before, before we sort of talk about how this really be- then became your story, mm. what were you thinking about this process when it was Stuart's diary? Were you aware of when he was recording? Were you supportive? Did you just kind of... Mm. What were your, were your thoughts about why he was doing this and how he was doing this? Um, well, I knew that it, it would appeal to him because I think he... You know, he would do it for lots of reasons. You know, one is to leave something for the kids and all that kind of stuff. I was a little bit resentful, I have to say, about that, um, because I felt like he spent more time talking to the recorder than he did to me. So um, it it was, um, yeah, I felt there was something about that that left me out of the process. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the issues that I spoke about, one of my disappointments about the whole last year was that we didn't connect in that sort of emotional way that I would have liked, and I know there's a lot of reasons for that. But... Um, you know, I saw that tape recorder sort of as one thing that got in the way because it was his experience and it was his thing and, it, you know, he wasn't sharing sort of those pieces with me or what I imagined. And, of course, it was surprising to me when you told me that you didn't felt like you didn't have enough material just on what he had, you know, recorded. I was totally surprised about that. Um, but in a one way... Forty hours. <laughs> it, sort of, it sort of confirmed to me that um, he wasn't going down to the deeper emotional levels in any sense. Not even by himself was he doing that, which I think is really interesting. Was Okay, so it's interesting that you felt that Recorder may have been keeping him a little bit from you, connecting yeah. with you. right. But obviously he wasn't connecting with the Recorder so much either. Right. I mean, what did you, what did you think, knowing that he was recording all this stuff, theoretically, very honestly and openly, mm. and yet you knew there was this whole story happening that wasn't being documented? I think I, I think I thought to myself, you know, someday I, I not that I had any plan to do that or anything concrete in place, but you know, I, I thought, you know, I that's someday a story I have to tell, and I think you know part of the reason that um, I was able to sit down with Mary Beth and tell, say the things I said is because it was, I just had to. I mean, you know, it's like it's catharsis. It's you know, it's that what you go to therapy for. It's that feeling of of release and. You know, just letting that out because really, even though I I had been to therapy, um, going to see a therapist for you know all the last year of his life, pretty much, um, it was no, no, actually, it wasn't until yeah, it was after that. But um, you know, it, it was the work that I wasn't doing that I was able to sort of let go of all that. Let's talk about the transition. So when again, as I said, when it became your story, when. Mary Beth, can you talk about, you got to a point where you felt this just maybe wasn't going to work, and what were your possible, what did you think were, what could you do about that? Well, it's a horrible feeling to think that someone has done this incredible amount of recording for you for a year's time, here they are in the middle of dying, and they've done this thing, and as a storyteller, you're thinking, "Mm, not going to work. You know, it just, you feel like, you feel horrible, you know. And so I felt, of course, this enormous responsibility to him and um, uh, the commitment that he had made. Yet I, um, 
I knew I was listening to, you know, I was working with very human editors and producers who were right there, you know, cheering, cheering us on that we'd hope, hoped it would be something that we could put on the air, but it wasn't. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just, I knew that the family, the understanding was that the family would have these tapes forever. And that when we were done, regardless of what happened, they would be able to take them and, and keep them for their own. And I said to Emily and to Sean, who I was working with, I said, you know, Rebecca's very quiet, <laughs> but she's really honest. And I, I just have this sense that there are some other things that might be, we might talk about. And Stuart has just died, but I think I should just give this some time. And, and maybe I will play some of this tape for Rebecca and it will provoke some thinking, some honesty, some deeper something. If she hears this voice for the first time or what, I don't know. And that's my last chance to turn this into anything. And that's, that's where we got to, we waited a year. I mean, I remember, I mean, these are the moments you just really feel horribly when you're in the middle of such a delicate situation. I remember I was calling Rebecca trying to get her to record all the way through the time Stuart had hospice in his home. These are these moments, you know, when you feel awful. But you just know. Do you just know? You lose sleep about, you know, should I call now? Should I try one last time to try to get something, something here to have Rebecca record? You have to remember me. You yeah. Know, calling. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I Call that the loathsome task of doing that. Yeah. Did, you, did you think I was awful? No, no. Heartless? No, no, I didn't, because you were always very respectful. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that gave me a lot of confidence about working with you, is that, you know, you were always very respectful. Um, I knew that you had known somebody who'd gone through this experience, so I, you knew kind of what was going on, or at least could understand that. And, um, you know, I felt a little pressure, but... It wasn't like overwhelming. I think, you know, in the end, I felt confident putting you off to a certain degree just because it just wasn't the right time. But by nature, those situations, you're at complete opposite, you know, cross purposes yes. where you, the producer, wants this to be documented yes. and you want private, your private life. Yeah. And that happens a lot. Yeah. And it's, you know, as, as you say, my Beth, it's a very tricky thing to like, how much do you want to be this, um, this like, Mm-hmm. You know the, yeah, the you know documenting grim reaper right. of of you know public radio, um, right? And there's I mean there's the and for me there was a competing emotion going on. One was that I I really did I didn't know what was on those tapes, mm-hmm. but I did want to have my side of the story told. I did want that other perspective to be told, and um, I mean I actually. You know, there was a part of me that wanted to sit down and keep an audio diary, but I just, I just couldn't for whatever reason. So I think it just, you know, worked a lot better for me to have those, um, those, the questions from you and to hear your voice and to have the conversation. Uh, that was much better than being alone with a tape recorder. This conversation happened about a year... A year later. Can you talk about timing and sort of the luck of, of, of the timing? Well, um... I, of course, right on uh, on the heels of Stuart's dying, that wasn't the time to do this. And obviously, I'd really lost touch with Rebecca. I would call, and I wouldn't even talk to you. I would oh. talk to a nurse or someone else. And so um, we waited almost a year 
Mm-hmm. We would email on occasion, mm-hmm. and I would say, I'd love for you to listen to some of this tape. I'm about to try to finish this, and mm-hmm. I'd love your side of this. And it wasn't until about a year later um, when I called you and you said you'd be willing to do this. I was in L.A. Rebecca was in St. Paul, where she lives, and went into a studio mm-hmm. and agreed to listen to tape. And something happened in the first 30 seconds of that interview that has never happened to me before that I wanted to play for you. That was a clue to me that something, when you're internal, you start thinking, okay, 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 this is there's something here that's going to happen. It was so unbelievably powerful that I connected with this person in a way that... Um... Oh, this is very strange. Great audio equipment. So yeah, we're, we're rolling right now. Okay. I'm putting my feet up on the... <laughs> I'm relaxing here. That's it. Yeah, really. That's it. I have never... <laughs> I have never in 25 years of doing this have anyone ever say they wanted to put their feet up. <laughs> I just knew that there was something in that moment that said to me, she's relaxed, she's relaxing, she's settling in, there's, some, there's something, what's going on? She's putting her feet up. She had never done this. All this other stuff was very foreign, but... Um, but that was, to me, I always remember that moment. Was that not the second section we had? Didn't we have two? No. Okay. No. No. That must have been a different public radio producer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I did feel comfortable. I did. I guess I was just ready to tell that story. And, you know, it has something to do with the timing of what else, you know, other things that were going on in my life. Right. And, um... The other piece of this, and you heard it in the story, but it happens in the first 10 minutes of that conversation where you just think, well, where do we begin? Do we start by playing this tape? And I just said, you know, I haven't talked to you in such a long time. Just tell me what's happening now. What are you doing? How are you? Whatever. And she started to tell me right away, which totally, again, kind of turned me upside down and made me think, okay, something's happening here, about this story of meeting your old boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It came out instantly, uh, almost for 10 minutes, the story of meeting him and how it had changed her life and how it enabled her to have this love for her husband that she'd never had. Mm -hmm. And and that was, I was, uh, you know, I knew at that moment that there was probably an openness and honesty, you know that, I hope you all know that feeling of when you're just so in love, right? I, I know you're not together right now, but that moment, you're, it's like every day, every neuron, every pore in your body is ready, you know, just to talk, to expose, to whatever. And that's the moment where she was. And I don't think had I talked to her two months before... Mm-hmm or maybe six months after, it was just that moment where she was... I think it was, yeah, it was uniquely at that moment where I was um, putting together this whole... Because you, like most people know, that feeling of falling in love and, you know, walking ten feet above the ground and all that kind of stuff. I was thinking it made me remember what that was like with Stuart and, and all those, everything good about the relationship that had sort of gotten really buried under that last year, the weight of that last year, was popping back up. And that was wonderful, and it was awful. because Wonderful because I could remember that again, and awful because then I had to grieve that again. But, you know, it was, um, it was, it was a unique moment, I have to say, probably. 
And then the stories that followed was kind of like once we had connected, and we don't, we never, we didn't know each other really at all. But once we'd connected at that level, instantly, it was a way to talk about anything. After that, and at the end of that conversation, I remember thinking, Shh, you know, you are among the bravest of the brave people I've ever talked to. Hmm. These are the kind of stories that people die and never tell anybody. You know, maybe their therapist or their priest or nobody. And uh, I will never forget that. Um, yeah. But Rebecca did remind me, do you remember this? And we were done, mm-hmm. that basically nobody knew what we had talked about. So here we had this tape, you know, that was intended for national broadcast. And like, who knew? You said you talked to a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe your best friend. <clears throat> right. And nobody else knew any of these stories about Stuart or herself mm-hmm. or the boyfriend, right? Nobody right. knew any right. of this. Right, yes. So there we sat. <laughs> Me on the phone in L.A., Rebecca in the studio in Minnesota thinking, now what do we do? Yeah. Nobody knows this, right? Right, and I was worried. I mean, I was worried on a lot of different levels. A, that, you know, like none of his family knew about my new relationship, that, you know, how is this going to make him look? How is it going to make me look? How does it make us look at a family? You know, it's like, it just, you know, it felt like walking out the door naked. I mean, it it was too overwhelming at that point. But at the same time, I guess because of what I had read online when I went to that online support group of people, families of people with brain tumors, I understood that the story was not that unique. And actually, based on the response that the piece got, um, it's been confirmed to me over and over again that probably everybody, everybody who has a family has had something like this happen to them. Um, So... Let's deal with this... Um, for another minute because I'm interested in maybe how you negotiated the sort of ground rules of whether and how to tell this new story and Rebecca how how you were going to approach make you know deciding that you would actually make this public well um, I had told Rebecca in the beginning that she would see the script for the piece before it aired she couldn't change it but she could see it. So And she could decide whether And she or could not decide would... whether or not it went on the air. Yay or nay. She had that control. So it wasn't as though she would say, please don't put that in, take that out, whatever. It was kind of either all or nothing. So that was the beginning. Even with Stuart, we knew that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this at this stage, um, we just decided we had to wait because there were too many people who didn't know, right? Yeah. So we waited another year. <laughs> this is what I call a lesson in patience, right? Yeah. We waited a whole other year. Right. Because nobody knew. Mm-hmm. You were worried about your kids. You were worried about your in-laws. Right. Right. And I think had that piece about not having the control to say it can't air, um, that is what cinched it for me. Because if I didn't have that control to say, no, I can't, I can't put this on the air, I would not have done it. I would not have agreed to it at all but we got to a stage where a year (laughs) later I emailed Rebecca and said all things considered is interested are you okay Mm -hmm. Rebecca said okay oh my god I said yeah (laughs) (laughs) all things considered and you heard okay it goes goes from like (laughs) 
three people knowing, right, to 11 million people knowing, yeah. right? And, uh, yeah. and we started the process, and then Rebecca changed her mind and said, I don't think I can do this. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And I remembered conversations in my household. My husband's a journalist, too, and we were talking about this over dinner, and he'd say, you're kidding me. <laughs> After all this time, she's, she said, no, she's going to pull back and not let you air the piece. You know, you could just go ahead and do this. You have all the tape now. She knew the terms. You know, you can imagine how the conversation could go. And I'd say, but it's her life. This is her life. These are her children's lives. This mm-hmm. is, what do you mean? You right. know, I, of course she has to find her way. And I tried bargaining, like, you know, can you not say, can you not use my real name? Yeah. <laughs> can you not say my children's names? Can you not say where we're from? Um, yep. And Ellen you know. Weiss, NPR said no. I tried to use first names. They wouldn't go for it. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't allow me to do it. Mm-hmm. They had a whole weird list of reasons why not. I couldn't understand that, but they, they didn't. And right. so we went back and forth. What were a few of those reasons? Um, you have to be able to say that there's some fear of some major financial harm, hardship, you know, or physical harm. She had a whole list of things that really were to say that this person would be endangered um, because apparently they'd had too many requests for people asking to be anonymous, so they wouldn't allow it. Uh, I could think of other outlets I could have gone to who would have said that was okay, but at the time, Bill Marimo was head of news, and that was his edict. I think there's something also about a diary that if you're saying... I'm sharing this very private thing, but I'm not so comfortable with it that I can't use my last name. Maybe there's something strange. I, you know, there could be something strange about. It. I'm not talking about a journalistic, but just, just as a listener, you know, you sort of want someone to know that they're they're on board. So we emailed back and forth. I remember Rebecca. There were times I'd email you, didn't write me back. That's true. I would write her and say, "Well, what do you think?" No answer. I would take a long time yep. to think. Yep. Yeah, and, and I'd write her again. And Maybe the, you didn't get my earlier email. <laughs> well, what do you think? Yeah. No, no, I know, because I was so undecided about it. And, um, you know, I, in fact, I even sent the script to other people, um, you know, some longtime friends, one who I haven't had much contact with, I wanted just to be, because, just sort of as an outside, didn't know us all that well. How does this come off? And then people who knew us better just saying, is, you know, is this, does this make us look really bad? How do you, what do you think? And... Um, <clears throat> Do you remember that one email you sent me back, which was something like, I will, I'll say it in a more exaggerated fashion than you really wrote it, but the mm-hmm. way I interpreted it was, this is not about, you know, your greater glory. You didn't, we would never write it this way, but I'm going to just say it in a way that people in this room, you hear it this way. This is not about your greater glory as a documentarian. This is about my life and my children, and you didn't write it that way. But it was basically to say, this is not about, you know, your peace. um, Well, and I also wanted it to be, I wanted to be useful to people in other ways. I mean, uh, it's kind of like what I was thinking is the audio equivalent of driving by a car accident on the highway and you look and you think, oh my God, you know, thank God that wasn't me. I didn't want it to be the audio equivalent of that. I wanted people to say, well, which is why I wanted there to be the resources online and I wanted it to do some good for people, hopefully. I mean, that was, the, in my own mind, the only way I could really justify putting myself out there like that um, and taking the risk with the family. And we both felt that way. That was the only reason to really get in the middle of all this in the first place. Yeah. I think we felt that there was this 
that the, what was new about this was that kind of raw, really deep, deep honesty about the far from idyllic last year. Um, that's what felt unusual and, um, and very, very real and true. And I, and I think personally, when you <clears throat> emerge from this process, uh, that's it, it, that, that's the lasting thing that you feel like you can say in my own work. Um, did it work? Was it right? Was it worth the time? Was it worth the airtime? And uh, if you can say it was true, really deeply true, uh, that's I think the best thing you can say. Kind of just poking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Almost every year that I do radio stories, I find I'm worse and worse at predicting who's going to be a good talker and who isn't. And I think there's something interesting happening in this piece because you both talked about what a wonderful talker Stuart was, you know, how funny and talkative and what, a, you know, sort of in your response, he sounds like the perfect person and he wasn't. And Rebecca, you're quiet, you were reluctant. And I think what, what you get, you know, you talked about the honesty of this piece, what you get is the reluctance. And I think the reluctance helps to give, helps that honesty. You, feel, you hear that. And I think it's interesting, this idea of, I think about talk-outers and talk-inners, you know, the people who are entertaining and just fun, and then, but then the other people who kind of make you lean closer and closer and closer 
to get closer to them and to the radio speaker and talk inners. Uh, you know, can both of you talk about finding, you know, what, what draws you to different people? I guess maybe that's more a question for you, but seeing the switch in sort of what you're interested in in both of these voices. Oh boy, it's... Um, it's just, it's a very deep, intuitive, primal... <laughs> level of when you're with someone or you hear someone talking and just everything in your insides to say, this is it. <laughs> this is really powerful. This is the kind of person who has something to say or this is the kind of person who's really willing to uh, reveal. And it's rare. It's really rare, right? You spend 94% of the time with people who aren't who have interesting things to say and give you nice tape, but um, uh, Rebecca forgot there was a microphone, and that was that was part of it, I think. Yeah. Do you remember? Um, I think you. I think um, you told me later that Mitch Hanley, who was there doing the audio stuff in the room, that he sat down and you said that he was really. Um, I can't remember exact words you used, but it was something like he just became totally pulled into the story, I think. Um, Did that surprise yeah. you that Stuart was supposed to be the talkative yeah, one and that yeah. you were supposed to be the... Yeah, no, I mean, um, I, yeah, I was very surprised that, this, that the story had shifted that way. Again, I hadn't listened to the tapes, so I didn't know exactly what was on them. Let's um, take questions in a minute. Let me just, b before we take questions, I, let me just get back to one other thing. Because I think for those of us who are producers and who tell these kinds of stories, one of the things where we would probably love to ask people like you and our subjects is, so why do you do this? Why do you agree to tell this story? What is your interest? What do you, and I, I think it's interesting, I guess what you finally came to was that it's larger and that mm -hmm. there was a, a sort of a larger purpose. Yeah. But can you help? Can you help us figure out what what makes the difference? Like, why do people want to tell their stories, and how we how can we convince them? <laughs> well, probably if it weren't for Mary Beth, sort of verbally uh, saying, you know, I mean, just going out, sort of over, what I would consider overboard because I'm Scandinavian, you know, um, going just like going on and on, not really though, um, about how. Um, you know, you're just, your honesty and, you know, on and on. And I thought, it just took me a long time to think that, okay, well, maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe this is different. Maybe this is something people don't hear every day. Um, it was my knowing that a lot of people had gone through experiences like this, but you don't hear people talk about the ugly sides of it. Um, and, you know, that sort of personal... Again, not very flattering wanting to get my side of the story out. Like, I didn't want Stuart to have... I didn't know how he was going to portray it, honestly. And um, I didn't want it to be something it wasn't. I wanted to have some control about how the story came out. And um, Mary Beth offered a way to do that. It was all the way through, like, the day, the morning the piece aired. Yeah. That Rebecca called and said, did we do the right thing? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And once you did listen, once it was on the air and you knew it was out there in the world? Um, I was a little nervous. I was nervous because I didn't know how the community would react, you know, kind of the larger community. But, um, you know, it, in the end, I thought it, it was honest. It did reflect what happened. It wasn't overly dramatic. It, it didn't, you know, under portray what happened it was it was pretty right on target and I felt good about that I felt good and then when I saw the reactions I read through the the uh, online responses I that confirmed it for me and your kids they have never listened to it um I had to when I told them what I was coming here to do they they were like what huh (laughs) you know do you remember that thing I did they've never listened to it um I don't know that anyone's ever even talk to them about it um, and I know that they're my son might be ready he's 14 now he might be ready to hear it but I don't think my daughter is I don't think she's ready when you think about sort of them listening to things about Stuart way down the road and he this collection of tapes that he did but then mm-hmm. also this story that tells a very different story mm-hmm. what do you kind of depends on where they're at developmentally <laughs> right now as teenagers they don't want to be a part of anything that sets them apart or makes them look different or anything that would be as exposing as that is. I think they would hate that. Um, at some point, though, when they're older, I think, I think they'll appreciate it and they'll say, yeah, that, that is kind of how it was. And that will be a good day when they, when they can do that. All right. Um, let's take questions. And there's one way in the back. I was wondering, um, that... Um, there's a question about the, the response. Do you did you ever do it like a? Did you look at the responses? NPR really uh, really tried to do things that would make Rebecca feel like um, this was more than just the piece. So they put an online set up an online forum where listeners could you know post their own stories, which they did. There were hundreds. Yeah. And um, many of whom wrote, I can't believe I'm hearing somebody say the exact thing that I'd lived through. I cannot believe I'm hearing this, you know, yeah. over and over again. Thank yeah. you, Rebecca, yeah. over and over A again. lot of people said, you know, we had a, a bad experience in the last year of my father's or mother's or somebody's life, and it's just really nice to hear somebody talk about it. Right. Rebecca was worried. Do you remember that people, how did you put it, that people would hate you? Well, there, there was that one part of the piece that I, that was the only thing I would have changed about it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I wish I, I what would you? <laughs> I would, there's that one line in there where I, I, um, I talk about the conflict I had inside of me about Stuart and his preoccupation with doing things on the house, outside the house, you know, um, knocking down walls and repainting, and we took off all the old siding of the house and put up new siding. It was like, the, and the, because I think the rest of that sentence after I said, you know, I wish he would do things to help out inside the house and with the kids and all this other stuff that I'm struggling with. And then I think I, I, think I went on to say, but I feel bad about that because it's the last year of the man's life and he should be able to do whatever makes him happy. And I thought cutting it off at the point you did made me sound like kind of like self-centered. <laughs> but there, were a couple, there were a couple negative replies, a couple people who said, oh, you too, you know. Two out of like 400. I'm not kidding. Two. Yeah, it was overwhelmingly positive. Those two write the same negative reply to every story. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I, this is just for you too, not as a, as doc makers. You run into the meeting people, your subjects, and you end up not actually liking them, and then having to still tell a story. What do you do with that emotion? Not actually, obviously, not nothing to do with Rebecca, and you, that experience, but other experiences in the past where you realize there's something. Have you? I have not. You know, I have not had that happen. I feel very lucky that I've not had that happen. I have to say that I tend to gravitate toward things about which I have real heart. I mean, I'm not trained as a journalist. I think of what I do as nonfiction storytelling. And I very selfishly move closer and closer and closer to things that I fall in love with or I just want to know more about and I feel like the microphone is my great ambassador door opener way in to the unbelievable experiences with people and I've been really lucky not to have that happen I don't know lucky is not the right word but I've not I, had that experience I think I mean I've, I've definitely done stories with people that I haven't liked so much and or characters in stories that I haven't liked as much but I think there is like Luckily, there's this thing that happens if you're working with someone over a long period of time and you're really doing it in kind of a human three-dimensional way that even people you don't like so much, you do start to find the things that you do like about them. And I think that, that it's almost like a self-protective mechanism if you're going to do a story. Because you, know, you can use people as little cardboard little things that you don't like, but then they're just that. If you're really making someone human, I think almost by default they, you like them you know, in some way. So I think it kind of solves itself, I found. Um, something that you guys are talking about reminds me of an issue. Like, often I think the subject is accepting of the project because of the advocacy role or potential advocacy role that the piece can play. And as a producer, I think, A, advocacy pieces aren't usually that interesting, and B, I think you kind of know, ultimately, a more intimate piece can serve that role. But how do you, I feel like sometimes you have to present it in a semi-advocacy way. Or how did you struggle with, did you try to make an argument that a more intimate, intimate story can play, can ultimately touch people in a way that makes them more open about these issues? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Well, there's no doubt for me that I don't think it would have meant as much. Now, for, for Stuart, for her husband, I think he knew it would have been something for your children regardless. So that was the way in. There has to be some, I believe, selfish reason, you know, positive way that, that she would, or the family would have agreed to do this. And um, uh, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-esque I say this, but I, I believed that too. I really believe there was a greater good to it. And that's why I could call the last week her husband was dying. To me, that's when my head hits the pillow at night and I think about the integrity of what I'm doing and I think about people's lives after you walk away. That there was, uh, you know, I realize you're calling it advocacy, but there was a message that I had seen in real life in another, in a myriad of lives that hadn't been recorded, that there was uh, a message out there to be sent. Um, But I wasn't, pushing her 
to say more, to do more in the interest of that. In the end, after she had done what she had done and said what she had said, I said, you know, this is rare. And I think this will be helpful to other people. And um, I really meant that. really meant that. Of course, the kind of advocacy that gets journalists going is the idea that there's some story out there that people aren't talking about. There's some, you know. Right. And I'm sure that that was in both your interests. Do you have anything there? But did that feel real as we talked about it? I mean, did you ever feel like I was just... You know, I didn't even... Pulling you along, you know, trying to talk about the, the greater good when all no. I really wanted was a no. format breaker piece on all things considered. No. <laughs> No, no, I never even, um, no, honestly, it was very, um, like I said, you know, being in that studio, for some reason, I mean, I, you know, I had, hadn't met you, actually, I couldn't even remember what you looked like, mm -hmm. and um, I just had your voice, and you have a wonderful voice, and, you know, it was coming in, and you're very soothing, and I'm in this booth all by myself, and it is like a little bit, I'm not Catholic, but I imagine it's a little bit like being in confessional, you know, um, so, there was just this wonderful, appealing, cathartic aspect to it, you know, which, again, is kind of the selfish side. Um, and, you know, the later advocacy, if you want to call it that piece, you know, what else are we going to do for other, other people? That was an afterthought. Right. And that was NPR, of all organizations. That was Ellen Weiss... Ellen, we're here. I don't think she'd mind my saying this. She had lost a brother in the last year, a very rapid decline. And I think together, of all organizations, you know, we knew Rebecca was really struggling. And Ellen said, what if we gave Rebecca the opportunity to post this essay online? It was called Making Her Pain Public. What if we did this online forum? They had a conversation between a therapist um, and uh, uh, someone who was a producer for their website about helping manage these sorts of issues in families. We did a resource list. But that was all NPR's idea. So of all, they really helped me make Rebecca feel, again, kind of surprisingly, of all organizations, like we were really doing something more than just a piece. Mary Beth, I wanted to ask you about that really pivotal interview with Rebecca. And um, I'm wondering, you did it as a phoner, and were you worried about that kind of distance at all? And then also, um, not, I, I'm surprised, I, I can understand why you didn't do a pre-interview, because you want to get the raw emotion, but to kind of go in blind, I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't do a little bit of pre-interview in order to know where to take it. So could you talk about those two things in that interview? It's funny, you know, because I just knew everything rode on that one conversation. All these, you know, like what the time was, a year and a half of work, all, all could have fallen apart or happened in that, in that moment. And um, I don't know how to describe this, but it, I, I'm sure you, you all go through this in, in important interviews you do. Uh, all I can say is I just decided that, um, in a crasser way I'll say, it had more anticipation or more, uh, because I knew Rebecca was going to hear Stuart's voice for the first time, I thought that might add some something impalpable feeling, energy, interest, drama, whatever, to the moment. She'd be hearing that. 
Um, I knew we'd have as much time as we needed to get there, if we ever were going to get there. Um, when you're in somebody's headphones, um, that's as maybe as powerful, I, I don't know, than if we were really looking at each other, but it was pretty powerful. I was right in her headphones, just as close as you could be. So, and, and you know how that is? It's kind of like, um, well, Gwen and I have talked about this, the whole experience when you're riding in a car with somebody and you're talking, you're not looking at each other, mm-hmm. you know? Sometimes how stories can emerge and emerge when you're not really looking at each other as you're saying things. That wasn't all premeditated on my part. It was just the nature of... And I thought, if anything, we could take it... We could have that conversation and maybe there would be another. Or Who would know? Who would know? It was really a big roll of the dice. And... Um, and it was the it was the moment in time when she was ready to talk. So no, I know it was really risky. But I, I, all I can say is it's again it's a very hard thing to describe. But in this room, you'd understand. I just try to get myself into a place where you are really deeply listening, where all of your preconceived notions are gone, and you are as as much inside a person's head as you can be, listening to everything they say, listening to little moments like when she put her feet up, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, I wonder why she put her feet up or what's going on. You know, yeah, I mean, just, she put her feet yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm whatever in. it is, whatever it is, where you are just so in tune with where you are, be here now, right? That uh, you never know where it's going to go. And then as it starts to happen, again, I keep kind of pointing to my insides, but that's all I can describe when you were there. And she started talking about Bruce. And I thought, wow, this is really going to be a powerful time. Is there specifically a question for Rebecca? Oh. Sorry about that. Um, hi. Did you, what was the response from your in-laws and... It was very positive. Yeah, I I didn't have any negative comments whatsoever. Um, It just, you know, seemed very accurate. I think they didn't know maybe in the detail that was explained on the tape, but certainly like his father was there, you know, when he was, you know, going in and out of his paranoid moments and, you know, the close friends and neighbors, the people whose reactions I really cared about, some of them had inklings of that. Yeah, definitely. So it was, it, was, it was very reassuring. You should tell the story <clears throat> of a, a couple weeks later of that Pioneer Press person. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, the blind date. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're still trying to get the stuff out of her? <laughs> um, so I... I did, yes. Okay, so I I did go to um, one online dating service, I guess. At one point, I ended up dating someone who worked for the Pioneer Press, which is St. Paul's newspaper, and um, we were sitting down having dinner, and, and um, he was asking me, I stated that I was a widow, and he said, oh, you, how'd your husband die? And I said, I died of a brain tumor. I said, oh, I just heard a piece about that on the radio. <laughs> I'm like, oh... That that was me, <laughs> and it's like talk about all of a sudden realizing that you know somebody knows way too much about you <laughs> before you know anything about them. I mean, it was. 
I told Rebecca she should have said to him, now you have 22 minutes to tell me something equally <laughs> revealing about yourself before this dinner goes any further. Yeah. But that, that was the only time that's happened, actually. So hopefully now nobody remembers that anymore. Uh, Rebecca, I'm just curious if you ever thought about how Stuart would have reacted um, you know, he was a really honest person, and I think that, you know, gut level, I think he would have liked it. I think he would have liked it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it was just handled very well. Um, very, I think the humanity of it showed through. There wasn't, you know, a good guy, bad guy kind of thing going on. It was just very, very humane. And, um, yeah, I, I think he would have liked it. Did you feel awkward sort of being the one to make the decision when he wasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, having had this positive reaction to what's been put on the air so far, have you thought about, Rebecca, taking this any farther yourself with any kind of first-person narrative written or other one? No. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Gwen? Um, well, by the same token, a, a, a similar question, but, um, you know, we're all producers and work in the field, and um, given your feelings about this piece and the process and the hesitation and the going forward and coming back and going forward and pulling back, you know, you go back to St. Paul and have your life and we go and do our thing. I'm just wondering, and when you look back on it, if you've had enough distance, how this experience might have um, either, when you look at, back at it, do you look at it and say, this all, you know, all done was helpful and healing, or do you look at it, I'm just wondering how you reflect back on it now, given you've had even more distance, mm -hmm. and um, you know we're just going to go on our merry way at our little conference, and you're going to go back to your life, and you've had this exposure that you had so much, you know, back and forth about. How is it looking to you now, and how do you think it changed your experience of grieving, and or or did it? Oh, definitely. I'm not going to summarize that one. <laughs> <laughs> No, it definitely changed my experience of grieving. It was a really pivotal and important part of that process. I, in fact, one of the people who I ran the script by was my therapist. <laughs> you know, and she she kind of gave me the okay on that. You know, saying that, yep, this is you know this is a good and important and helpful thing to do. And I think in in her capacity as a therapist, I think she could even more so tell me that yes, there are lots of people who have this experience. And as I pull back on it now. Um, it was it was helpful. It was useful to me in lots of important ways. But I think it was really helpful to a lot of other people. And um, uh, you know, I think that at some point it's going to be really useful to my kids. So um, you know, I I'm definitely glad that I did it. But at the same time, I also now respect the power of the, <laughs> of being that public, and really don't you know that's not something I'd want to do again unless I felt. Like I had a good reason, and now that I know that the story is not that uncommon, I feel like I need to have a story that was really uncommon. Just a, a few more questions, Peter. When Mary Beth, when you said this was format breaking for ABC, I was thinking that 
it's also sort of conversation changing, you know, because as you said, this is not the typical story you hear about. We're so focused on being heroes in our culture. To talk about what was hard and what was difficult between you is really, um, it's, a, it's a new conversation to be having in the media. And I was wondering how each of you hear sort of retreads of other kinds of stories about, I mean, everyone's experience is individual and there can be many honest stories that aren't this one from other people. But when you hear other coverage of the experience of dying from cancer, for instance, how do you hear them? Do you hear them differently since, the, since this experience? What do you hear in them? Do you mean, do I, um, I guess, uh, I wish there were room for more coverage that did leave room for this, right? That's where I'm left feeling. Um, because we all know, I mean, whether you've had a, a situation that's anything close to this, we all know how true it is instantly. Right? Um, it makes me wanting for more of this, of of this kind of voice, honestly. Um, is that what you mean, Peter? Tell me more what you yeah, mean. I think a lot of the stories we tell, there are so many points in the process where you could have told the story, and it would not have been as revelatory as this. And, you know, sort of here, I heard little paths off of it where I would have <laughs> maybe done it. And I'm really impressed by what you, what you chose to do together. So I think if I had done that, it would be hard for me to then hear other work that was getting praise or being just sort of out there. It's like, oh, this moving story. Yeah, well, you really didn't get to much deeper. Right. It's but it's rare. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that you just have to acknowledge in, in all of our life's work and all the you know honest, true work that we do. Everything's. This is rare. It's really rare to find someone who's willing to go there. And you need to just, you know, be happy you met someone who is willing to do that. I think we have just one more question. Someone in the back, all the way in the back. There? Um, after Rebecca said yes and then said no, what, what did you do then? What was the process? Did you already come to FDR? Yeah, they'd already said we'll do a format breaker, we'll change the format of the show, we'll, yes, we're really ready to give this a lot of time and. Let's move forward. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just waited. I just knew, it, you know, what could you do? Like, and that was how I, I mean, I really felt like uh, I could tell from the email exchange that we were having that it was getting to that place where Rebecca was starting to feel a little more suspect of my motivations for doing this. You know, you, should, you really, you know, it was kind of like the, we were just getting close to the finish line and, you know, this, remember, this isn't your work, Mary Beth, this is my life kind of emails. Not those words again, but that kind of exchange. <laughs> and honestly, if I hadn't done this as many years as I have, uh, I, I might have been more panicked about it. I just have worked with a lot of amazing people over the years and I thought, well, if this is the way this one goes, then that's what's meant to be. And, and because um, I wasn't paying my mortgage based on what NPR was going to pay me for the piece. That's another consideration. I mean, this really is a situation where, you know, I'd had a grant and I was making my living doing other things and this could wait. It could wait till it had its time. And it, it just had been such a saga in the very best way <laughs> of, of finding its time. 
every step of the way that it's kind of like if you can find that space in your work to say, this needs to wait, this isn't ready, this person needs more time to get to a place, or this isn't ready to air. In the end, the payoffs are really worth that if, you don't, if you're not worried to get the check to pay your rent. We, we think so much about... I said, I completely understand, which yeah. I did. And that attitude was really probably the most important thing. I mean, you've explained it to me. I remember those conversations when you said, you know what, I've done everything I need to do to satisfy this grant, satisfy the grant. If it goes or doesn't go, it's fine. It's your decision. And that was probably the single biggest factor that convinced me to, to go ahead with it. I mean, I'd worked with a lot of people over the years with stories that had um, lots of reverberations, potential reverberations with people's children and the rest of their lives. And these are people's lives. You know, these are their lives. This is not my life. And I'm just privileged to be there for this little glimpse to do honor to that. And if she says no, then it's, it was. And it had been an incredible privilege to be with, working with her as long as we did. If you don't mind going a few minutes over, we can take one more question. Was there, do you have a uh, just, question? just to echo what, what I've been hearing from, from both. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, without that respect that, that Rebecca, you picked up on mm -hmm. from Mary Beth, Mm -hmm. And without the without the patience that Mary Beth had and the willingness to just to let it go, if it if it's not meant or you just let it unfold, give it another year, give it another year. I mean, if you had the irony is if you had pressed more, we wouldn't be sitting here. Right. So thanks for your patience. It's a good um, you know. There's a test that I think you know a lot of people like a lot of documentarians keep in mind is you know, it's an honest treatment of somebody's life if you can listen to it with them in the same room. And here we are, not just listening in the same room, but we're kind of deconstructing the whole thing. So I think that that says, that says a lot right there. So thank you very much, both of you. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions, but until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. Okay, speak soon.